Hey everyone, before we get started, just a few announcements. I wanted to share an exciting update regarding this subject of today's podcast. So Aquilo's uh, Gender-Based Violence Risk Score and their joint work with Criterion Institute is being profiled at a meeting around the G7 gathering on June 27th. And Criterion Institute's founder, Joy Anderson, will be discussing this work as part of a broader 2x collaborative commitment to higher gender lens investment standards. This is a really big deal because it's just going to give the whole topic of pushing gender lens investing standards higher, and in particular, your gender-based violence risk to a much larger audience and bring a lot of awareness. So that's exciting. As a call to action, if you're listening to this podcast, and you want to check out the amazing data that we're discussing and the risk score during this episode, you can visit app.aquillo.io. So app.aquillo.io and navigate to the gender-based violence risk score. You can select a country and view the risk scores across countries and learn how it can be used in financial models. So that data right now is free, courtesy of some support from UNICEF. So please do download it, check it out, share the news, and spread the word. The idea is not a lot of folks in the investment world are aware of this data, and it's a small bit of activism you can take part in by sharing this. Also, for those who are interested in gender equality writ large, Aquilo is hiring for two roles immediately and has a host of other roles they're going to be hiring for in the coming months. You can check that out on Aquilo's website, so aquilo.io. The immediate roles they're hiring for, one is gender equality and social inclusion research principle, and the other is a predictive modeling and applied data science principle. So two quite different roles there. Also Criterion Institute. So Criterion works closely with Aquilo. Criterion's a nonprofit think tank who, you know, Joy, the founder, Joy Anderson, is largely responsible, contributed greatly to the entire field of gender lens investing. They're hiring for an executive producer slash programs operations lead. This is a senior role within the organization. And Criterion's great. They have a very flexible you know, work environment and culture. It is a remote position. And so if you're interested in that, check out criterioninstitute.org. And lastly, I wanted to congratulate my previous guest from episode 42, Natasha Fried, who runs Needs List, which is a public benefit corporation where they've created human-centered solutions for communities that are displaced by climate change, conflict, and poverty worldwide. And they just announced a $1 million grant and receiving a team of engineers from google.org to support the integration of state-of-the-art AI, launching their tool set in Ukraine, and building out a free open platform for everyone later this fall. So that was such a huge win for Needs List. Tasha, I've been following her work closely and they've just been doing amazing work for so long. So this is such great recognition for that work. And with that, let's move on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Gender lens investing is a field that is far more robust and complex than most people realize. 
Often, gender considerations are reduced to checkbox exercises where investors count the number of women being served, the number of women-led businesses being financed, or the number of women sitting on boards. More ambitious gender lens investors may expand the scope of their analysis to consider issues such as pay equity, parental leave policy for workers, and forced arbitration. Yet even the most ambitious gender lens investors do not think much about the diverse range of factors that can affect gender equality and social inclusion across the globe, not just a given company, project, or industry. Most often, this analysis is considered too complex and the gathering of high-quality, standardized data far too onerous. That's because the range of issues on a global scale is mind-bending and covers disparate areas such as financial inclusion, unpaid care work, land and property ownership rights, education and literacy rates, nutrition and food security, sexual and reproductive health rights, and the list goes on. In short, there isn't an area of our global social fabric that gender equality doesn't touch. Enter today's guest, Jessica Menon, who is solving this challenge as founder and CEO of Aquilo. Jessica is a gender equality and social inclusion specialist. With 20 years of experience conducting gender analyses, crafting gender action plans, managing organizational change management with a gender lens, and implementing systems-level change to advance gender equality globally. She has experience working across development, humanitarian, finance, and private sectors in a wide range of industries, and she also holds a Master's of Public Policy from the Georgetown Public Policy Institute. During this episode, Jessica and I discuss Aquilo's work bringing together data, analytics, and tools to inform better gender-transformative decision-making across governments, nonprofits, and for-profit businesses. We discuss in detail two of Aquilo's tools, which includes the gender-based violence risk score, the methodology underpinning them, the challenges around data collection and comparability, some of the surprising results of how various countries score on their gender-based violence risk score, and how investors should interpret and integrate this data into their investment processes. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Jessica discusses the exciting new predictive modeling work they are doing right now with gender-based violence. And with that, let's get on to the episode. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to to have you here. I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and what are you passionate about and what problem are you trying to solve? Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm Jessica Menon. I'm the founder and CEO of Quillo. Quillo is a data as an analytics platform that's focused on gender equality and social inclusion more broadly. Gender-based violence is a piece of that. I have been practicing as a gender equality and social inclusion practitioner for about 20 years now and started my career working really in the development sector and working quite a bit with bilateral organizations and and some development finance institutions and really found when I was doing gender analyses, when I was looking at, for example, what are the challenges and opportunities for women and men or boys and girls on an agriculture project or and when you're building a road, how do we think about gender? I often found myself feeling like I was a bit of a tick the box um, person (laughs) um, that was coming in to tick the box that needed to be done by these institutions to say, yes, we've thought about gender. And I often had the question, Jessica, thanks for this great analysis and this great action plan of the things that we can do, but we've already set our work plan and our budget. Can you tell us the things that we can do that don't cost 
um, any money to do and that someone can easily, that's not a gender specialist, can easily in- implement. And I felt really, I'm very passionate about my work. I've spent a lot of time working with people, talking to people in focus group discussions, practical time in the field, and was frustrated by this well into my career and felt like we must be able to solve this challenge that I saw really doing meaningful work that was going beyond the ticking the box and pushing gender analysis more upstream to before uh, investments are made, before budgets are set, before work plans are set, when it can really actually inform decision making, but it just takes a lot of time to contract someone like me and get someone on board and, and, and then do all the research and work. So I thought about this for quite, it was keeping me up at night. And also I was attending a lot of conferences with other gender equality specialists, which felt like about a decade of attending conferences about this exact problem and having the same conversations. And even though I'm not um, a technologist, or maybe I wasn't, maybe I am now, um, thought that there must be a way to bring in technology to to get all the quantitative and qualitative data that exists in the world and bring it together in an easy way so that people can access information and data that they need to do it, to basically understand it in an easy way and, and really bring that upstream and also not feel like the gender police were coming in <laughs> and telling them all the things they're doing wrong later in the stage, but have it be a fun thing. Look at these opportunities and let's talk about it when we can actually change the decisions that we're making or the plans that we have and not later on um, when there's not really a whole lot of change we can affect. Um, so I started Aquilo five years ago and we launched our first product about two years ago, which is a broad contextual landscape market level analysis for gender equality and social inclusion. And it looks across a broad range of topics, anything from workforce development to gender-based violence to unpaid care work, health issues, etc and then a variety of domains. So looking at power and decision-making, laws and policies, access to resources, and and all of these things. And and we found that even though people have identified that, and and it is true that we still have a lot of data that we need to capture in the world to do analysis well to inform decisions, there's actually a lot out there. And so we bring in all this data from thousands of different sources and data sets. And this is something that I was doing in a manual way, but now it instantly, Um, brings in all this data, analyzes it on the back end, and you can simply click on a country like Kenya and a sector like infrastructure, and you instantly see where there are strengths and opportunities related to gender equality, and you can deep dive into that. So in in that, we were really focused since my historical experience has been in the development and humanitarian space, have been focused on, on that segment of the market, and people started using the tools there. But then I also started working a lot with development finance institutions and people from the financial world. And those were some of our first users um, who subscribed to to using this tool. And they found it very useful for conducting as a, a part of due diligence to go deeper into some of these topics. So that's that's where we started and where I started to get deeper into the, the financial world and started working with others such as the 2X Collaborative and the Criterion Institute and Joy to look at problems specific uh, to the financial world and looking at how uh, gender lens investing can be strengthened through analytics. And I think the question as to what do I really care about? I really care about making it easier to make good decisions. For me, if I will die a happy person if we have been able to put more information 
that is high quality information in front of decision makers at an opportune time to, to make uh, better decisions that are going to ultimately make better impact and, and do work a little bit differently. I really am interested in systems level change and how we can do things differently. So there's a lot we can unpack in that. So this gender equality and social inclusion analysis, you mentioned this covers like a really wide range of, I guess, areas. Gender-based violence is one of those. You can correct me if I'm kind of miss uh, speaking here, but gender-based violence would be like one subset of that gender equality and social inclusion analysis among many. So do you have a, a defined number of categories and Give me maybe some of the other examples. I know you listed some already, but just we can unpack it a little bit here. That'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, we call them on our platform thematic areas and gender-based violence is one thematic area out of 15 thematic areas that we have in sector agnostic diagnostic. We do have the tool operates also in different sectors. So in the agriculture sector or infrastructure or health, there might be additional thematic areas that are sort of sector specific. But out of those 15 that are standard across any sector, we have other areas that we look like look at, such as unpaid care work, workforce, poverty, access to resources such as such as financial capital, energy, water. We and then we also have split that out and look at things like laws and policies. So what are the laws and policies about these themes? But also then what is the actual experience? Because you can have laws and policies that are wonderful, but then not have actual access to capital, even though there's a strategy on microfinance and access, for example. So those are some examples. Yeah. Okay. And lots of even just push the kind of the next level down. So like, Maybe just give an example of some of the indicators you're looking at, maybe some of the source, like where are you getting that information and and then how that rolls up into a score. Yeah. So maybe one example that I can deep dive a bit more into is around access to resources. So we have indicators that include the do you have do you have a bank account a banking account? Do you have do you own a cell phone? Do you do you have a savings account? Do you have water or energy on your premises. And with within those, I mean, wh- where those indicators come from, it, we pull from a wide variety of sources. It could be from the World Health Organization. We pull up from demographic health surveys, DHS surveys that do household level surveys uh, to ask people about their experience. We don't just know about what standard government reports are, but we know from people specifically if they actually have these things. We also look at things like adolescent birth rates. We look at the acceptance or attitudes towards women's paid, which is to me a very fascinating indicator or things like acceptance of wife beating. Is it ever okay to, is it ever justified to beat someone's wife if she burns the food or if she doesn't um, come home at a certain time? And these kind of attitudinal surveys and this kind of data is to me really, really important data because we, we can see that even if we have strong laws and policies in place, if we haven't changed people's uh, perceptions or norms on what is acceptable, we still have quite a bit of work to do. And in many of these acceptance indicators, like acceptance of women's paid work or wife beating, we often see that it's not just men who sometimes have acceptance of these things, but it's also women. So we have sex desegregated from different sources, including demographic health surveys, I was just looking at Ethiopia the other day for something and, and found that actually a very low percentage of men reported 
that they think it's acceptable to beat one's wife if she does if she makes a mistake. But the women's acceptance was over 50%. So when we look at changing norms and we have to be focused on societies as a whole and really look at how those kinds of opinions and attitudes shape workplaces and homes and be able to design appropriate actions to, to respond to that. Yeah, that's, uh, wow, that's really interesting. So uh, can you give some context to how the Jesse analysis has been used in practice or how you'd like to see it utilized? Yeah, de- definitely. So one, one example that is not way upstream, but at the point of looking at a specific investment, we have several development finance institutions, including FinDev Canada, who have been using the, the Jesse analysis tool for over a year now, and they are now regularly using it as part of their process for due diligence for an investment. So if they're going to, for example, make an investment or they're looking at an investment in Nicaragua, they'll pull up the tool type in Nicaragua and, and the sector, and they now have all this information about basically the, the landscape. And they use that to identify potential ESG risks and kind of move move beyond just the organizational level, but really look at what are the influencing factors for this company that we might be investing in that might be something we need to be aware of so that we can plan accordingly and, for example, maybe include in in the deal additional investment to work, for example, with a local organization or NGO that can help address certain dynamics. And that might be anything from having investing in, let's say, a fund that is investing then in micro or small women entrepreneurs. And we find from this analysis that women feel very unsafe walking at night. And that is going to severely then restrict the ability for these entrepreneurs to grow their business because now they, while men in the market might be having their shops open well into the night and, and selling goods, women aren't safe to do that and they're packing up or, or closing up early. So what are some risk mitigation measures that could be taken looking at putting, supporting more secure lighting around the market area and looking at transport and how women are getting to and from uh, market areas and basically helping create a more safe environment around around these entrepreneurs' lives and work workplaces to to help support them. So that's one example there. And then in a more recent example, there's a fund that has been using the the Jesse analysis to look at the context for a specific country and look at, for example, literacy, access to digital bank accounts and other things that are restrictive to allow women to formally enter into the market. Things like having birth certificates and in the specific country that this fund is looking at, women don't have, women don't have formal documentation. So they're not able to open a bank account or really do a lot of anything. So they stay in this informal sphere, but yet they have these very grand and ambitious targets to, to invest in micro and small entrepreneurs. So that has informed their strategy to look at how to support the formalization process for women so that they can become investable or bankable. So those are two examples of how it's being used right now. Yeah, oh, that's really great. Thank you. That's, it just helps really get your head around the tools and the opportunities for how to use it in practice. Who do you see as the main stakeholders for this? We really started out with kind of the development space in mind, and we have users from NGOs and uh, 
private sector companies that are supporting development projects, but have really seen um, an, an uptick in, in the use of the tools by by DFIs, yes, but and not even just social impact investors, but people who understand that gender equality and social inclusion can make a difference on, on a specific company and how successful they might be. And so we're really seeing, and, and our kind of target user base is pretty broad, so it's really expanded into development, humanitarian, financial, and, and the private sector. And we've also developed alongside the 2X Collaborative, which is the, the newly created industry industry body related to gender lens investing. So they've been grew out of this 2X challenge that development finance institutions created for setting standards for gender lens investing. What does it mean to do gender lens investing? What does it mean to move beyond you know, quote unquote pinkwashing and just counting counting people to have something meaningful when we talk about promoting gender equality and, and women. And we've worked with them to create a variety of tools that work with this contextual analysis to look at the organizational level so that an organization, a company, a fund, a financial institution can assess their own policies and practices, their own leadership, um, their value chain consumption practices in their market. And then we pull in all of this market level information we already have and use it sort of as benchmarking. So you can see side by side how a fund or FI or company um, are addressing gender equality, but look at that contextually, uh, depending on what what country they're in. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I'm just curious for hear about your background. Like, how did you, how did this become a passion for you? Was it were you always focused on gender studies, or was, is this an evolution for you? I just I'd love to hear anything around your background and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely been been an evolution. I do not have I didn't study gender studies, but I've always been interested in it. I think where I really started to be kind of very curious and interested in the topic of gender and kind of looking outside the world around me when I was 16. I've come from Appleton, Wisconsin in the United States, which is a pretty small town. And I, there was an exchange student from Colombia at that time who was in my school for six months and we became very good friends. And she ended up inviting me to come to Colombia to stay with her for a summer. And my parents said no. And I said, I don't care. And I have a bunch of money from babysitting and I am buying my airplane ticket and I'm going to Colombia. I just didn't have a passport that I needed my parents' signature on. But I wore them down and they got me my passport signs. So this is the first time I was out of the country, and and I went to Colombia, and I lived with her and her family in Cúcuta, Colombia, which is on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, which is also a change for me coming from public school, but also just saw everything everything around me. It was this whole new world that was opened. Seeing a lot with at the border, you can imagine there was just a lot of there Venezuelans that were coming in at that time, a lot of poverty. And I became very deeply interested in kind of understanding uh, all these dynamics and kind of the, the reason for people coming in and out. So I was really excited at that time to explore those topics further. And then I decided to go to in undergrad, I went and to University of Wisconsin-Madison. I studied international development and and also studied abroad in Ecuador and Chile. And I was always drawn toward looking at issues related to gender equality in women. So although I didn't study in, in, in that context, I was really fascinated by looking at 
economics and poverty and how the human side of it, because to me, there's you can't really extract the human element from looking at economics and, and poverty. And then I, for, for a time in between undergrad and graduate school, I worked at a local city council as a legislative assistant. And there was also really drawn towards issues like maternal mortality and, and adolescent adolescent birth rates in, in, in urban areas in the United States, where in some zip codes, because of demographics and issues, they're are just as high of mortality rates as there are in sub-Saharan Africa and became really focused on that. And when I went to grad school and went to this program at the Georgetown Public Policy Institute that focuses on econometrics. And I always, I, I thought I always hated math <laughs> and I was trying to push myself into a program that was very heavy on econometrics and, and data and statistics to over, overcome that a bit. And I'm really glad I did that because it would have been very easy to not do that and just explore and go deep into the social side. But this was doing quite a bit with with statistical analysis, regression analyses, learning how all of it works and starting to do programming using SAS. And there also continued in topics I was exploring, having an interest in things like humanitarian crises and gender equality, and then ended up doing a fellowship in between my graduate school years in Nigeria with a human trafficking organization that supported return victims of human trafficking. And that's what I, and I interviewed a lot of human trafficking survivors that had returned from Nigeria from being in Europe and basically used that data to, to analyze and looked at predictive factors of basically susceptibility to human trafficking and explored that in my master's thesis. And then I and th- then I worked quite a bit with different development agencies, the World Bank. This was before the SDGs, but I did work during graduate school with the World Bank and UNDP looking at the financing of MDG3 at the time, focused on gender equality, and basically was looking at country commitments to to reducing gender inequality and the actual financial investments to, to do that. And probably it's not a surprise found that there are significant gaps in the investments in realizing in realizing those commitments. And then one thing led to another because I was in, in that space and at some point someone called me a gender equality specialist. And I thought, okay, I guess I'm a gender equality specialist. Mm-hmm. And I like it. And yeah. so to, to started out doing a lot of research, but really what I was passionate about was the implementation side of things and talking to people and understanding kind of people's lived experiences and then what we can then practically do about it within all of these different investments and, and projects. Interesting. So that, that brought you, so that was... That work was, did you say the UNDP? Yeah, UNDP on and the... World Bank. Yeah, on the MDG3. Okay. Yeah. And, and what time period is that, roughly? What years are we looking at? That was 2006. Yeah. Yeah. And because you, you, you mentioned MDG3, so that's the Millennium Development Goals, which preceded the SDGs. Yes. And what ran from like 2000 to 2015, is that? Yes, I, I think, think that that's correct. The, the time frame. Yes. Okay. And so you did that work. And where did you end up going from there? From there, I went to the Millennium Challenge Corporation. So after graduate school, I worked for the Millennium Challenge Corporation. I did some consultancies that were really fun before that, working with the Population Council and the Nike Foundation, who had just formed this Girl Effect campaign. I'm not sure if you remember this. It's mm. still in force. but I don't. But, 
was really focused on adolescent girls who really weren't a focus at all. And they're this invisible population with underserved needs. And we know how much it matters what a girl goes through in adolescence, even starting at age 10, where she starts to get toward her reproductive years. She also starts to look at potentially going to secondary school. It's this critical piece in a girl's life where a lot of change happens. And depending on how a society and her family value her, she can either um, go on to continuing her studies and not getting married and not having a baby and getting a job and becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a productive um, employee at an organization with a career path or get stuck in basically servitude for her family or a Mm -hmm. family that she married. So that was a lot of focus then and now adolescent girls has been on, on the agenda and rightfully so, adolescent boys, because we can't forget about the, in, in all of this, we can, there's a demand and a supply. We can demand empowered mm-hmm. adolescent girls who go to school, but unless we're creating, we, we can't just demand that as a community. We have to have that demand within their families and, and their communities and their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important too. Anyway, so then I went to Millennium Challenge Corporation and that was really fun for me. And that's where I re- realized I really enjoy being challenged and really love learning. Because as a gender equality specialist, some people develop um, specializations where they're looking at gender and health or gender and education. But you can also have this lens that you're using to look at everything. And at Millennium Challenge Corporation, they're really looking at infrastructure investments. So it was developing roads and large scale water utility and energy utility projects and things like that, that I hadn't really thought about that much. And so I really developed this love of learning and thinking about how are, I mean, in all of these instances, people are involved, but how do we think about this gender lens and how people are working on developing a road or working at an energy utility, how people are using a road or buying energy and whether they're men or women actually influences the way that people work or can access a job or can access these services. And I really enjoyed kind of diving deep into the, these kind of, I guess, more non-traditional areas that weren't being looked at as much at that time. Um, and then went into looking at, after MCC, did I started my own consulting business and I was doing work doing gender analyses, looking at you know, everything from social impact assessments for oil shale mining investments to agriculture projects and always have enjoyed kind of thinking about, okay, the people factor. <laughs> How do people come into this? How do people influence influence this? How can we use this these really large-scale investments to think about how that is going to shape the world. All of these things shape the world. All of these things shape people's lives. And how can we think about how we can make um, adjustments to to make sure that the way that we're influencing the world with these investments can actually have some positive impact? Yeah. I, I mean, as I'm just hearing about the variety of your experience of in a way, the perfect person to to launch this, just because it seems to me like you've been looking at gender across a number of different application areas. And so like, as you say, I guess there are folks who can be specialists in, in a narrow area or folks that have a cross-cutting, really wide set of focus and, and framework for looking at it across, across the board. And that, do you feel like these kind of variety of experiences is is what uh, you know led and allowed you to even attempt something as ambitious uh, as as Aquila's trying to do yes i ab- absolutely and 
I love the word ambitious to segue, but for, for a moment, we have values <laughs> at Aquilo and they're do with heart, move together, wield prowess. And the last one is dare to be outrageous. And that's my favorite one. And the it. reason is w- <laughs> when I was talking to many people about this idea for Aquilo, which I thought about a lot. I mean, it was five years of thinking about it, but it was a thing I just couldn't let go. I just could not do Aquilo, even though I knew it was going to be difficult. People would say that's ambitious in a way that was, it was clear they didn't think it, it right. could be crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> they didn't mean yeah. ambitious, they meant right. crazy. They meant yeah. crazy, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's it, that is exactly what why I saw that it was possible because I found myself collecting data manually, going to all these different data sources, but regardless of what it was, if it was an infrastructure project, if it was agriculture, if it was looking at gender-based violence, response services, whatever it was, I was doing the same process and I was going to the same data sources and I felt like I was recreating the wheel in a way, like it was inefficient, even though that I knew where to find all of these things, I felt like there's a lot of work that replicated and repeated and a lot of time being lost doing that and a lot of resources that are just being spent writ large, not by me necessarily, but just writ large by mm-hmm. all of the many organizations doing this. And so working across all these different sectors or whatever you want to call them allowed me to see the pattern of the way that we do work and also see the pattern of the inefficiencies in the way that we do this work. And that is what kind of, that's what I couldn't let go. That's why I thought we have, this is a systems level problem. We're not doing this work the way it could be done. There's a better way. So yes, definitely. Hmm. Yeah. I love that description of like, I couldn't not do Aquilo. I mean, I think that's the best founders and the best organizations are started that way because you're just so passionate about it. I mean, I think normal entrepreneurship is you have to be a little bit crazy. And then something like this, you have to probably be a lot crazy and dare to be a, what was it? Dare to be outrageous. outrageous? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And this is exactly what we need. I mean, if you had described this to me before you had actually done it, I really would have thought the same. I was just like, well, this is sounds wildly ambitious in a, in a similar type of, I don't know if you're going to be able to pull this off. I mean, just it's mind boggling. So maybe tell me a little bit about, so what, how did Quillo come to be and talk about the genesis of it? Yeah. So, I mean, so that's a lot of time thinking about it, waking up in the morning, thinking, like thinking about the problems and, and then also thinking about what the potential solutions were. And I think I quickly realized that it's not a manual one. We have consulting practices that exist, that's existed for a while. But if you look at increasing demand, which is a great thing, it's not a trend. Doing gender equality and social inclusion analysis has now been around for a while and it's here to stay because people realize it's important. And now there's laws, there's national laws that mandate things for development organizations, for DFIs and for companies to do certain things. So it's here to stay. And we, we can't manually keep up with the demand and still do good high quality work. So that means we have to have some sort of, we have to ha- use automation. We have to use tools. And I think that scares people a lot that are, okay, automation introduces some level of, especially in such comp- dealing with a complex social or social topic that's scary to people i think and it was scary to me too like how do we maintain quality standards in introducing automation or machines into this and not having a person doing this bespoke 
analysis. Um, so I grappled with this for, for a good amount of time. I talked a lot to, to my peers, to different colleagues about the idea and played around with it. I talked to my brother a lot, who's this kind of mad scientist computery person that I'm not. And I, <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time and he was very kind to give me his time asking him what was possible, kind of giving him my idea, which was taking all this data from all this, all these data sources, but putting it to, together in a kind of systematic way and algorithms and he also told me that I was crazy, but spent the time with me to just sort out what that could look like. And he did tell me it was going to be a lot of work and very painful, but um, I figured out that there was a way. So I, so I, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to do this, and I don't have the technological background, and that was probably the scariest piece was that unknown of I don't know how to code, I don't know how to. I know data well, I know gender equality well, and uh, I know this content, I have the thematic expertise, but I don't know backend coding and Python scripts and JavaScript and all this stuff. It's um, very foreign to me. And I really couldn't, I, I, I really have, and I still haven't found kind of the CTO that I thought that I needed, but found developers that I've basically subcontracted and have that expertise and now have this amazing development team that has all of these skills and is able to work with me to implement what I want in the end <laughs> and do all the things. And I've learned along the way some bits and pieces of how coding works. So I think more and more I'm becoming more, more comfortable. But then also my, my good friend from graduate school who is in investment banking at the time was visiting me in Zambia and I was telling her about this idea and she was looking to make an exit from banking. So she said, let's do this together. And I think that gave me the momentum to, like someone actually wanted to do this with me and wasn't telling me I was crazy. So that gave me the momentum to say, okay, let's do this. And we started small and we are still working and, but slowly started growing a team and hired research assistants and basically Task one was just to map all of the data in the world that exists related to gender equality and social inclusion. And that literally took us three years. I mean, we just, and we started in Excel spreadsheets yeah, and that has all moved into more sophisticated backend databases and MongoDB and all these fun things. But we started with basically what is the framework of, of analysis? So if we're looking at a thousand, I mean, right now we have 1500 indicators from over 500 sources. So what do we do with all of that to not overwhelm people? And so we spent time basically putting together these frameworks for something that doesn't matter what sector you're in. And then, okay, in agriculture, what are the, out of this list of 1500 indicators, what are the indicators that matter for unpaid care work and power and decision-making? And these are the five. And so we mapped, mapped that out. We came up with scoring, how to score all of these things. What do we do if there's missing data? There is missing data. We did manual research to fill it. So if there's a country with missing data, can we find a credible report that has been recently published that maybe looks at, that we can use as a proxy indicator? Or where is it maybe appropriate to look at a regional average and use that as a proxy? Where is it not appropriate to do? So we mapped out the, the framework and the algorithms and just took all of the data and amazing people on my team who know how to do Python scripting that I still don't know how to do, put all of that logic into a script. And then, yeah, and here we are now and had graphic design and all this fun stuff. And we iterated a lot. I mean, we went through three different tool versions before we landed on what we have now. And that was painful because we did throw away 
Like, it wasn't even like we had to build on it. We just threw away earlier versions completely. And making that decision to do that was really rough all of the, the time and investment. <laughs> it is, it is. But it's fine in the end. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the time, it doesn't feel fine. It feels really no. painful, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Um, I, so uh, you mentioned what are you, your examples of like, okay, so what's the logic say if there is no data or if the data is missing and what you did to get around missing data? Uh, are there challenges? I have to imagine there's challenges around like even comparability of data sets. So like one data set doesn't cover all the countries. And so now you're looking for a different data set if for the same type of issue area or indicator that you're looking to try to measure but they aren't necessarily reporting in the same units or time frame or like, how do you handle data comparability? Yeah, so we first, I mean, our, our first criteria was, okay, what are the things that we want to describe in the world? So we know that we want to describe unpaid care work. So what are the data sets that exist in the world that describe that? And then looked at our options. And there's oftentimes a variety of data sets, but we would look at things that are from standardized sources where there's been and we use criteria. So, you know, does it cover a large number of countries or are, is it only 10 countries? If it's only 10 countries, then fine, we'll park that over there. Maybe at some point we'll pull that in and see if there's something there we can use if we have missing data as a proxy. But we're going to go for the data sets that have a large number of, of countries and that make updates periodically because we found some really cool data sets that was collected at one point in time with no clear plans of when it's ever going to be collected again. So we had to make some tough decisions on, do we use this really cool data set with all these countries, but that we know that at some point the data is going to not be relevant anymore, or do we keep that out? And we, what we found is, I mean, even things like, I mean, we'll take one example, gender equality wage gap, which is a very important one. We definitely want to look at in our analysis, what is the gender equality wage gap between men and women? In, the in that instance, we found some standardized data sources, but it really only, it only had 40 countries in the standardized data set. I think it was from the ILO which is a good source, but did not have every country. So we said, okay, we need that data. We're going to use a standardized data set, but then what do we do for all these other countries in the world that are not included? And in that instance, we did manual research we, you know, for each country and scraped and scrounged and found studies that might have been done on a missing country where they did calculate the, the average gender equality wage gap. And it might not be exact or the exact time frame, but still the measure is the wage gap. And so in that instance, we use yeah. that data, but what we do on our on our dashboard for the tool is we have confidence scores. So we'll tell users, mm -hmm. okay, here's this score overall, but in, if you know, zero is we have no confidence in this score, or one is we have full confidence, which means all the data comes from the standardized data source that is that has been selected to, to measure this thing. If it's from a proxy, even if it's a very, I mean, we don't use junk data, but if it's not from the standardized source, the, the, the confidence score still reduces because it's not maybe exact or it wasn't measured by the exact um, group of people. So we basically decided we're, gonna, we're going to breadth and depth and choose that, but still be communicative about the fact that this is not completely comparable. We're going to take that over this pure and true explicit ability to compare um, apples to apples because it's more like types of apples in the end in what we do. Right? It's like a, a Macintosh yeah. apple versus whatever. So that's what we decided Granny to do. And, and I think that is, <laughs> yes, exactly. Granny Smith. So it's not apples and oranges, but it's different yeah, flavors. So that's what we've done. Yeah. 
Interesting. So, all right. So now you've uh, let's. I'd love to dive into this gender-based violence risk score. Is that the sort of newest thing that you're working on? A newest tool that you've one of them. <laughs> yes. Okay. So that yeah, the gen <laughs> the gender-based violence risk score is really it. It, it is a really uh, fun project that we've worked on. A tool that we launched last last fall. We developed this with Criterion Institute and Joy Anderson, along with support from UNICEF. And this came out of a relationship that Aquilo and, and Criterion established a couple of years ago, working this gender lens investing space and working together and solving solving some of these challenges and looking for opportunities for deepening the way that gender lens investing is done. And one of the one of the kind of conversations that that we were having at a Criterion hosted event, um, Convergence, which is one of the most fabulous, wonderful opportunities to have people congregate around issues of finance and gender a couple years ago was talking about using how can finance be used to address the topic of gender-based violence. And it was really interesting being in conversations with, with investors and not just social impact investors, but investors who were really just intrigued by this potential, who wanted to explore different opportunities, looking at how gender inequality might impact their return on investment and looking specifically at gender-based violence. And the conversation there was, yes, I care about this and I'd be interested in this, but I just don't, we, there's just not reliable data. And so at, with all the data that we have at Aquilo, I, I, data availability is actually not the challenge. We have, we have a ton of data and yes, it can always be better, but so can any kind of data, financial data included, economic data included, political insecurity data, all of this data, yes, has challenges. Data is data and it's how it's interpreted and used. But what we did is, is there was an interest from the investment community that was taking part of part in these conversations and they said, well, if there was data and some kind of concept or way for us to think about gender-based violence in, in our investments, then maybe we could explore doing something with it. So we we worked with Criterion Institute and developed this gender-based violence risk score methodology. And the reason that we deep dive into gender-based violence and not gender equality writ large is that there is a feeling that this is, I mean, one, it's just a critically important topic. Gender-based violence impacts one in three girls and women. And so it's just a very obvious influencer to gender equality. But two, it, it, it actually is quite measurable and sometimes more measurable than things like we talk about gender equality dynamics writ large and it feels a little bit, sometimes a little bit theoretical, whereas talking about women getting sexually harassed at work or women being assaulted or people who worry about not being safe walking at home at night, that's something that's actually is very tangible and is very measurable. So we constructed this methodology with the goal of saying, okay, let's move the conversation from saying we don't have data to here's the data, now what do we do with it? So the methodology brings in over 30 different indicators and we look at everything from laws and policies, attitudes, power and decision-making, access to resources, and we uh, do we basically follow the same kind of framework that we built with the, the broader Aquilo gender equality and social inclusion score, but focused on the gender-based violence explicitly. And so now this tool is available, again, for every country in the world. We actually focused first on developing countries, but recently made it available for high-income countries as well. Um, but basically, it scores on a 0 to 100 scale the gender-based violence risk in a certain country. 
And then what we did was say, okay, here's the risk. So if I'm an investor, what do I actually do with this? Great, gender-based violence, I care about it, it's a problem, but what does that have to do with me and my investment? We put together some models where we say, basically, gender-based violence is something that is a ubiquitous risk. There are operational risks, there are regulatory risks, there are political risks, and these all influence a specific investment, and they are systemic risks, just like you might consider in a ROI model, how political risk or climate change, which is more recent, but how you might include that in your risk model to come up with an ROI. So can you use the gender-based violence risk score to look at your overall systemic risk? So we're trying to move from, we have no data, gender-based violence matters, but we don't know about it enough, and move from the traditional look by investors at gender-based violence, where it's an ESG risk. I'm going to look at, at it in due diligence. I'm going to look at how a specific company or specific investment might exacerbate sexual harassment or human trafficking while something is being constructed. Move from that to, to look at how is this actually a systemic risk that could threaten my ROI because there are outside influencing factors that might limit the ability of, of people being safe at home which has maybe nothing to do with a company, but maybe influences how they're going to be able to come and work and be productive or reputational risk, especially with the Me Too movement, for example, and how sensitive things can become, even if it's not happening exactly at your company. So we put together these models and basically used the back end and, and our platform to create this GBV risk score that's now available. Okay, so this uh, there's lots to, to unpack here too. So this is this tool is freely available right now, right? It is. Thanks to you. <laughs> yeah, so they've provided some funding to make this this freely available. It may, may not always be that way, but if anybody listening wants to go to the website and check this out, it is app.quillo.io. So that's app. io, and then they can sign up on the website there and actually get access to the to the gender-based violence risk score and some of the other tools as well. Is that right? Is it like that the Jesse right. analysis? Is that available as well? Okay. Yes. And so what they'll get is like the scores for each of these countries and be able to see how they stack up on these various measures, whether it's the broader, like I, I, if I might describe the Jesse analysis as, as the broader, like cross-cutting across all the areas. And then, and by the way, Gender-based violence is one of those 15 factors you mentioned. And then if you really want to drill down and do a deep dive into gender-based violence, the GBV risk score allows you to do that, right? And really like understand that at a more detailed, intimate level. Yes, exactly. Is that a fair characterization? Okay. That is, exactly. So one of the things I really like about this is you've got this really cool spider web sort of graph that shows it's like a, looks like a, kind of a pentagon spider web where you've got these different intersection points and you map the, these five broader, I guess, scores. So there's, you've got 30, you said 30 indicators across five different categories. Is that right? So access to resources, human dignity, knowledge and beliefs, law and policy, and power and decision-making. And so you can see the as the you go out on the spider web, you get higher scores. And if you're closer to the center of the spider web, you've got lower scores. And so you can see at each of the five points, whether they're scoring high or low. Um, and it just provides this really great way to visualize five, essentially five different scores, right? Yes, exactly. There's 
one which it rolled oh, up into an overall score. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But it's important right. those five different. But it allows you to see like yeah. at the under. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's so like where's the score? So if they had a like a really high GBV risk score, you could sort of see is that because they're like it's really high risk across all those five factors, or like two or three or four of those factors are just contribute you know, are disproportionately contributing to the overall score. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And that can yeah. be really helpful yeah. when you're thinking about making an investment um, in a specific company or an organization, for example, because if you see, okay, there's strong laws and policies, one, that's a signal to make sure that this company is compliant with, with whatever the laws and policies are during due diligence. But also, mm -hmm. two, if you see that there's a very high risk for knowledge and beliefs, then that is an automatic signal that probably the it, there is a threat or a risk there that, that might be explored further for people that are running the company, managing the company, working at the company that could present risk to, to this investment. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm going to, just before I forget, I'm going to provide a link to these, to the website and where you can go to sign up and get access to all this in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to find that, it'll be in the show notes. Can you give me an idea, were there sort of standouts for you in terms of like really big surprises where you, you've done this? analysis now and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really surprised to see this country being so high or so low. Yeah. I mean, I, so, some things were were validating in some ways. Okay, we got this GBV risk score correct because we saw things like Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Yemen, countries in conflict. We would expect those GBV risk scores to be high. I think what really surprised me is, as I mentioned, we started out with low and middle income countries when we released it, but we just recently added high income countries. And I was surprised by a couple of things there. One is that one is that there's not as much standardized data available writ large. So we know pretty much all we want to know about laws and policies globally. That's very clear. It's easy to collect. But there's a lot of standardized data sets that exist for low and middle income countries on things like knowledge and beliefs. What do people think? Like, as I mentioned, what do people think about beating their wives? Or do women have the agency to to seek help? Do women seek help if they're experiencing violence? And that type of data is really readily available and standardized across most low and middle income countries, but we don't have that same data for high income countries. I think the data you know, might exist, but we have to find country by country for high income countries, different maybe little bespoke data sets that have been created. And so the question is, why aren't high-income countries included in this? Because we know gender-based violence is an issue everywhere. Why are we only focused on the low- and middle-income countries? But I think in, in addition to that, what I found is that one would expect things like laws and policies and access to resources for gender-based violence survivors. I would expect that would be across the board, pretty high, or I would say low-risk in the high-income countries. But we didn't necessarily find that. It is true that the laws and policies are definitely stronger in the high income countries. But I was just looking at Germany, sorry, Germany, <laughs> to call you out. But <laughs> there's laws on domestic violence, for example, but not criminal penalties for domestic violence. Mm. And that's just something that's a basic, something that's very basic. That's, that's one of our indicators. And I would just expect that European, Canada, North America, that those kinds of policies would be in place. And another one is child marriage. And we might not think that child marriage is an issue in high-income countries, but one, it is. 
And two, especially right now in this very globalized world that we live in and with all these crises happening, uh, look at Ukraine and women and children moving across borders as refugees into the more high-income countries, if there's not protection in place in those high-income countries, that's a significant problem as a society, but also as for, for companies, for organizations, and thereby for investments in, in these places. So I was surprised to see that kind of these standards that we hold aren't always aren't always the case. And another surprise related to high-income countries, I, I think maybe it's because I'm so familiar with the low and middle-income country data that I didn't see as many surprises. But when I was looking at the high-income, some data that we do have is this really interesting survey that asked women in workplaces globally across countries if they've ever experienced sexual harassment in the workplace or if they're worried about it. And I was really surprised to see very similar percentages of women who have either experienced it, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but who have experienced it or are worried about it. And that, I mean, I Sweden, Canada, United States, all about like in the 25% range, which is quite a lot. So I think part of my, I think what we see with this data, which I think is really valuable, is sometimes I think we forget and we rest a little bit if we are in places that are developed or high income that we think that we've, we have made progress. It's not to say we've made progress, but that, that we think that because we have strong laws and policies in place, that we've, the, the problem is not as high of a magnitude or as important, but the data shows that one, it is, and two, beca- because we're not collecting the data, we don't have full vis- visibility on it. And, and that shows that in, in, in and of itself is, is a challenge. And I will also, just one last note on this, is that I also noticed, yeah. we also look at histor- historical data and trends. We don't include in our score femicide or intentional homicide rates against women, but b- because there's a problem with, it comes from formal police reports, and we know that there's people don't report it very often, so it's not reliable. But we still are interested in it. So we still display that on our dashboard, even though it doesn't um, influence the score. And in almost all of the high-income countries that I was looking at with the data, we've seen an increase from, I think the data was from 2012 to 2018 when we had the last data, um, which is right before before the pandemic. We saw increases in, in, in many European and North American countries in, in femicide, which is intentional homicide rates correlated with, with one's gender. So it, there's a negative trend um, toward more violence against women. And we also know with COVID, which has been called the, the shadow pandemic, that has only worsened in magnitude. So I think the point here is that we can't, the data tells us that we cannot, we, we should not be comfortable and we should not be satisfied with where any of us are and that this influences people's lives and it also influences investments and the the kind of growth trajectory of economies around the world. Yeah, I, I, I like that. So this is more a teaser for those who are listening and maybe will find it interesting to want to like go onto the website and play around with the data and understand it. But I found it interesting that Saudi Arabia didn't score higher than it did. Now, I'm not an expert in you know the Middle East by any stretch of the imagination, but I might have expected that to be higher. I was also surprised that the Nordic countries weren't lower than they are. And they're not high, but, but that sort of stood out. And then I was also happy to see that Canada was, was I think, the second lowest score overall, yes. right? So I think, if I'm not mistaken, Colombia is the lowest 
which also not necessarily I wouldn't have expected it really high, but it does surprise me. Maybe that's the lowest score of any country that I think if I was unless I missed anything. Yeah. And then Yemen, I, I think, was on the highest. Right. Is that am I? Yes, I, I think that that's right? right. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. Anyway. Yeah. Those are all just teasers <laughs> for folks if they want to. And the, the nice thing is you can go into the tool and actually see how those scores are being arrived at. So I, I'm going to bring up a point because I'd like to talk a little bit about like the, the purpose of this, especially from the investment lens, is not to say, look, GBV rates are high and so you shouldn't invest here. The point is to arm organizations, whether it's private sector or public sector in the development space or not, that where they can take action that can actually help us to reduce rates of GBV risk. And I want to focus on the perspective of the investor because this is the Impact Investing podcast and that obviously we need investors to allocate more and more capital to these types of things. And I'll draw in from the conversation, and we've spoken about this already and, and spoken to, to, to John Lakomnik specifically about this, and he was a, a previous guest on the podcast talking about the challenges with the CAPM, which is the capital asset pricing model. It's the theory, a theoretical framework that derives a lot of investment decision making. And he was sort of talking about the ways in which it needs to, its limitations and the way it needs to be updated to incorporate impact. And he brought up a really interesting kind of point on, in his book about, about this is that not about gender-based violence specifically, but about effectively ESG risks at large and how if we can reduce you know, these ESG risks, we can we have an opportunity as investors to reduce the overall risk of the market, the part of the risk of the market that is considered undiversifiable. So you can diversify away specific you know, idiosyncratic risks associated with a specific country or a, a specific company, a specific investment structure, but there's an underlying amount of risk involved in a specific country or globally that just can't be diversified away. And yet, if we can reduce the underlying ESG risks, just like geopolitical risks, if you could magically wave a wand and make geopolitical risk go away, that would significantly reduce the overall risk of your investments across the entire portfolio. And so, and he points out that some of the reasons why the challenge to that is that investors don't see themselves as being able to affect those things. In fact, the, our theoretically, our financial frameworks and theory tell us that we cannot do anything about them. And he's arguing that's false. We can. It's just the types of things that we need to do in order to reduce, in, in, in this case, let's call it geopolitical risk or ESG risks writ large, are not the types of things that investors associate with their their day-to-day -day activities or their role. So they'd be more things like policy and advocacy as an example, rather than sitting behind a spreadsheet, analyzing and crunching numbers further. And so tying this back into this conversation, finally, <laughs> um, <laughs> you're making the argument that higher rates of gender-based violence actually lead to higher rates of effectively investment risk, right? And that if we yes. can identify these higher rates of GBV risk, we can now have a, a much better idea about how to go about reducing them. And that investors should care about that because they have an opportunity to re 
you know, what in John's words, re-rate the market. We can lower yes. the risk of the entire market, which would improve our risk-adjusted returns. So I'd just love for you to react to that in any way you, you want to. Yes, exactly. And that would that really stuck with me, the, the re-rate the market. And I, to be honest, when I first was listening to John and talking to John and, and discovering more about this, to me, I was surprised to learn that these things aren't already included in financial models because it, it seems to me, I mean, if, if we could, for example, even if we don't, care that much about gender equality or gender-based violence, but if we could mathematically create 1% to 2% across our entire portfolio, or not just us, across any investor in Kenya, for example, if we make some change and our ROI can increase by the magnitude of even 2%, wouldn't that be attractive financially? And so, yes, that is the exact point, is how can we look at the opportunity of investing in gender-based violence risk reduction, and we're not expecting any investor to be a gender-based violence ex expert or a gender equality expert, but where can there be that, that influence and that power that capital wields when there's an investment being structured with a, a company, even if it, a private sector company in a country that has significant influence in, in the market, and what are opportunities there to bring in an advocacy organization or a nonprofit with deep expertise in that country that can partner um, with that investee on a specific investment, but that can have rippling effects for the whole market. Or to say, hey, we're gonna put in place stronger policies in certain workplaces in organizations we're investing in, but alongside that, we're going to work with that organization to actually lobby the, the, the government to nationally mandate these things because we know that it's going to have positive effects in the market and reduce our overall risk. And I think that the you know, opportunities are sort of endless. Yes, there's a cost to it. There's, there's, there needs to be some energy and commitment behind it and also some resources that are invested in partnerships and advocacy and, and, and lobbying governments. But if our end goal is higher ROI and we know that can be achieved, maybe it's worth the investment. 100%. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that I really want to stress that point about the collaborations. The world around us is, is intricately interconnected in ways that we, uh, you know, aren't even aware in ways that we're not paying attention to, or are not in the habit of thinking about even if we are aware that they're interconnected. And no one organization or individual has the the expertise across the such the wide range of the dynamics that are actually at play that we need to just be able to learn to partner better with those organizations. I'm aware of time, so I want to start to wind <laughs> yes. down, but I do want to talk to you a bit, a little bit about, uh, ask you about, you're doing some predictive modeling work with the gender-based violence risk scores. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, this is really exciting. It's uh, something that, again, is um, in partnership with Criterion Institute, and that is being funded by UNICEF. When we developed this risk score, we, we conscientiously knew that what we're doing is developing a risk score that is based on risk right now. This is the risk right now, and we know risk in the past, we know historical trends, and we know what we have now. And we can certainly use that um, in decisions we're making now, but we also know that making financial decisions also looks very much at looking at what at, at the future. So. How can we also look at what the future risk of gender-based violence is to say this is not just the effective risk of gender-based violence right now, but as I mentioned, we know, you know female homicide rates are increasing in the world writ large. 
So in 10 years from now or 15 years from now, what is that trend going to look like? Or what is the trend of women's feeling of safety at work? And is that going in a positive or negative direction? And how does that potentially influence my ROI in the future and not just today. So we're developing this gender-based violence predictive model and we're looking across a broad range of factors and looking at gender-based violence and gender equality and how we can, one, predict economic outcomes, political outcomes, how could it actually, gender-based violence, where it is now, predict a crisis that could happen? How could it influence um, climate change, for example, which in all of these influence systemic risk to investments? So that's what we're working on building now, which is very exciting. And basically, we'll have a Monte Carlo simulation where people can log into the tool and play with different factors and see what gender-based violence risk might be over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year horizon and how that might influence uh, the ROI of a specific, a specific investment. So we're really excited about this to increase the power of, of the data analytics and increase the ability of the tool to help make um, better decisions. So we have fewer decisions like the housing market crisis. Maybe the next crisis will be related to gender-based violence and maybe we can actually prevent that from happening um, if we have better knowledge about the future today. I love that. That's really, really cool. So uh, just as we wind down here, Jessica, is there anything else you wanted to bring up that you thought was interesting that you want that I didn't touch on? Um, Any calls to action? Yeah, calls to action is to, I, I think my one call to action is to take a chance on the data. I know that the gender-based violence data and gender equality seems soft and it doesn't seem hard and reliable like our financial numbers, but take a chance and play with it. Maybe play around with it, play around with the risk score, explore the data and just try it. Maybe you don't even have to take action or make a decision on it, but see how it might influence your ROI in a model and you don't have to use it in the end, but just try it and just start somewhere and maybe have a little bit of, of trust in the power of all this data that we actually do have and recognize that data is data. And just like financial data, GBV data exists and it's how you choose to use it and interpret it. And I think the more that we just familiarize ourselves with it and play with it, the more we might trusted enough to start making better decisions in the world. That's my call to action. I love it. I, I will add to that and just say, if you are an investor and you are responsible for making investment decisions, and this is at all potentially even relevant to your work, then go download the tool, start playing with the data, start talking about it. I mean, even if you're not in a position where you can like change your entire organization's approach and introduce an entire new data set to the analysis. You can certainly be having conversations with folks within your organization about it. You can start to become familiar with the data. You can talk about it with colleagues. Who knows what other organizations they work for and their appetite to be able to incorporate these types of things. If you're a conference organizer or putting on a conference within your organization, whether it's pure finance or in the development space at all, you know, interested in ESG or impact or gender, talking like the awareness, I think is such a big part of it, normalizing this as part of the conversation. It seems to me geopolitical risk, you, you know, or, or just sort of investment risk globally, when we're talking, looking at other countries, incorporates a really wide range of factors. And there's absolutely no reason why this shouldn't 
be one of the factors. What you've proven here is that there's a robust amount of data. And in all cases, our data is never perfect. It doesn't matter what data we're talking about. And so it just doesn't seem to me a legitimate objection because it's this is a problem across the board. I love that, David. Yes, it's like normalize the conversation around it <laughs> to begin with and change happens little by little. I love it. Yeah, 100%. And the last thing I'll just say is you also have some open positions that you're hiring for on the website. Do you want to make a quick a quick pitch? Mention of those? <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, we are a growing growing company and we're hiring for research research assistant positions to focus on keeping our data the latest and greatest and finding all that great proxy data that I mentioned on an ongoing basis. We also want to increase our communications and develop use use cases and studies and videos and fun things to put out in the world to help people make these connections more. So we have a communications position and then partnerships are really important. So we have several positions open, help help us build and, and maintain our existing um, partnerships in, in all these markets that I mentioned. So you go on our website if you're interested and there's an online application. You can submit your interest and we'd love to have the conversation. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is such a fascinating tool. I love that you've taken on this audacious challenge and uh, I'd love to be able to hope, I hope this podcast can, in some small way can help support uh, this amazing goal. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was really fun to talk to you today, David. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.